Hello and welcome to Learning, Laughing, and Loving with your co-host Evan Money and yours truly, Scott Jones. This podcast is all you need. If you're looking to learn about the world, do it with a smile and to connect to the deeper mysteries of human life and the kind of connection everyone is looking to make. Money, 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 money! Money! Learning, laughing, loving with Scott Kent Jones. What a glorious day. Can you breathe out there? Absolutely. It's all clear now. We've had some epic sunsets, though. That's the Pacific cool. Northwest is the place that you don't want to be. Yes. I saw some videos. My brother showed me some videos of my friend in Oregon, and it literally was like a bad sci-fi movie. It was just all orange. I'm like, that's not a filter. That's real. It was like, whoa. Yeah. No, I saw somewhere where they compla- they compared like what the actual sky looked like to what it looked like in the Blade Runner movie. And it's the same thing. <laughs> like It looks exactly the same. It's like orange and weird. Yes. Yes. It was just like, what? And this is the weird thing if you're in the Pacific Northwest, right? Because they're like, okay, we're in a pandemic, so you got to get outside because you don't have as many indoor gatherings. And you can't go outside because then you're going to breathe. It's like, what do you do? Like, it's just, hey, can somebody like, you know, buy me a vowel here or something? Yes. Move to Philly. That's what you can. Run the Rocky yeah, Step. We're Come fine. On. We are fine. It's 70 degrees here. Oh! Uh, yeah. It's like balmy. It's nice. It's um, It's gorgeous out. And... I need a I need a selfie of you from the Rocky Steps. So. I was gonna do it today. I almost went running over there. Come on, gotta do it. And we're getting married on there. That we're doing twenty. We're doing wedding twenty seven next week. But one of the one of I the earmarks is really yes on the steps. Yes, I do a great wedding. By the way, so I want to tell you about a book I'm reading. I'm interviewing the author tomorrow. Ooh, this has been reviewed in the New York Times and many other places, and it's got actually my friend Mark Oppenheimer wrote the review in the New York Times. Full disclosure. As, as in Mark Oppenheimer from the Oppenheimer Funds, Mark Oppenheimer? No, he's a top kind of religious journalist, Jewish guy, interesting, super smart, runs like the top Jewish podcast on the internet. It, it, but the book is called Veritas. Veritas. Uh, a Harvard truth, professor. Right? Yeah, That's truth, truth and life. Okay. Yep. A Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife. Whoa, say that again? A Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife. Whoa. So basically, there's this kind of um, feminist scholar at Harvard Divinity, Karen King, several years ago. And she's, and I'm not saying that disparagingly, or she would say she's a feminist scholar. I'm just saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the team. Like, I'm just saying. She is the kind of feminist, kind of pretty progressive religious scholar at Harvard Divinity. And some guy who is like this, he was like the former, he used to run like the Stasi Museum in what used to be East Germany. And he was into some weird pornography stuff with his wife. And also came across, he was like, came across some, uh, he knew people that could, I guess, forge documents. or So he has this fragment that he pitches to her, which says, Something about Mary, my wife, like Jesus. It's a fragment of the gospel of Mary Magdalene, right? Okay. So long and short end of it is it it comes out eventually that – so he pitches it to her. She's this kind of revisionist scholar. She's like, look, Jesus is married. Mary Magdalene was his disciple, all this stuff. So it comes out eventually that this was on an 8th century piece of papyrus, which like the 8th century – I mean, that would be like saying, oh, we have a sample of the Constitution 
And actually, the paper was from you know the year twenty five seventy six. Yeah. I mean, the eight centuries. <laughs> so it's so it's like eight centuries, and the it was written with twenty first century ink. Whoa! And she still published the findings. Mm. And so this book, like, basically chronicles uh, this Harvard professor sort of. I mean, and she even defends like doing it like even after she found out it was a, fr- a fraud she kind of defends like well subjectively i know this is the truth so even if <sighs> objectively it's been proven false subjectively i know it's true and so there's probably some original fragment that's out there i just haven't found yet and i'm just fascinated because it's sort of like it, it, it there's so many interesting things about this story right a like what's the nature of the truth at what point do you double down when you know you're wrong? I mean, like, I mean, I mean, she just knew she was wrong, right? Like, I mean, and 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 it's just a fascinating, like, and also why why are things popular, right? Like, it, this is, I mean, it's interesting in the world of like dating biblical texts. Like, it's funny because I used to hang out with these guys at Princeton, these classicists, and they used to say that people at the seminary were fetishists about dates. They're like, look, we don't have the earliest copy of Plato's Republic we have is like 1400 years after it was written or something like that. That would be like if the earliest copy of the gospel of Mark we had was from Christopher Columbus's state. <laughs> and we have like, we have gospel, we have fragments of these texts, right. That are from the first century, like that we found, I mean, there might be earlier ones, but we found stuff. I mean, we have pretty early. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's remarkable actually like that, uh, the the number of ancient for is the New Testament is concerned. How many ancient fragments we have that are decades after yes. Jesus kind of walked yeah. the earth? Which, Etsy scroll whole thing, yeah, yeah. Like most ancient texts don't have these kind of they just don't have. There's not most ancient texts if you're studying them they don't have this kind of manuscript tradition. And like I remember falling asleep in Greek class because you had to learn. Well, this was from this manuscript and this was from this manuscript and you, and you pieced all this together. So it's interesting that like in a field that's so well documented that this woman kind of like Karen King kind of just like, I'm going to buck the system. I'm going to perpetuate <laughs> and, and perpetuate kind of a fraud. Uh, and Harvard Perpetrating Divinity, the fraud, as those rap masters like to say. And Harvard Divinity backed her. And some of that was like the Divinity School was in a battle with the religion department. And basically the president wanted to nix the Div School and just fold into the religion department. And Basically, that I it seems like that Harvard was like the Div School's like she's our champion. She's got a big discovery, <laughs> like she's going to save the Div School. And so this guy, so I'm going to talk to him tomorrow. Ariel Sabar he seems like a really lovely guy. We have a couple of mutual friends, but he's a sort of top flight journalist. Who I remember reading the article that became this book in the Atlantic or the New Republic or something. It was years ago. It was fascinating, and he's turned it into a full length book. And gosh, it should be a movie. I mean. <laughs> So it's awesome. So that's what I'm excited about. It's just I'm excited to talk to this guy tomorrow because I'm like, wow, this guy like uncovered a, a real like academic fraud mm. that was perpetuated seemingly knowingly. Like mm. it wasn't like um, after the wool was pulled over her eyes. Like when she found out that the wool was being pulled over her eyes, it didn't stop it. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 So, and so I two think- things. So- but but two things that come up for me with that. So 
the first one, Harking, you mentioned Harvard Divinity. So I'm, again, a West Coast guy, not the Ivy Leaguer dude. But I know Harvard originally was founded. That's what originally Harvard was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a it was a Christian school. That was yeah. the whole point. And then so somehow it segued, right? So now we're going to go, oh, this is Harvard Divinity. And no, oh, this is Harvard with the religion department. So I find that fascinating, right? Of just like, this is where we started. But now it's kind of where we're ending up. But it, it goes back to the classic classic as jim Rohn would say classic classic pilot to jesus right well what is truth yeah yeah and that's what i find interesting about the book because i i was it's funny i was talking with a friend today who is an evangelical minister great guy um he's in pennsylvania and i think he's a trump supporter and we were talking about polling and i said it's really interesting when I see a poll I don't like, right, I ask, oh, what's going on there? Like, what, it, like, you know, and I ask, like, oh, why, why is someone losing support here or there? But a lot of my, like, conservative friends, when they see a poll they don't like, it's, oh, polls are all BS, right? <laughs> although, although Trump is the biggest fan of polls. Remember when he was in the, um, in the debates, he would, he would, primaries, he'd be like, I'm at 22, I'm at 30. Like, and then I remember, <laughs> When John Kasich said something critical, and Trump said, "Well, the polls have you at one percent. That's why you're down at the end." <laughs> so, I mean, I often think about that. Like, there are inconvenient truths, right? Like, I and this guy and I were talking about gun control today, and I said, "Look, you know, I used to do this podcast with a liberal minister friend of mine, and every time there was a school shooting, he would get really sanctimonious about gun control." And I said, "Look, I've just re- I've done a lot of research on it because I would read all the studies like after these shootings, and." And I'm not a gun guy. I don't. I've never owned a gun in my life. I'm not convinced gun control laws would do anything to stop stop school shootings. Like right, like most of the proposals that are on the books. Again, I've read a lot of studies. Um, a lot of them done by medical professionals who are really interested in, in this stuff. I'm just like, look, honestly, it's not going to help the problem. Like, I think there are other things that could. And it's this is the interesting thing. Like. How do you get to the point when you can admit the hard truth, right? Where you're like, hey, I don't like this. It doesn't go with my politics. It doesn't go with my business model. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go with my theological framework. But basically, this is just the truth. As as much as we can get our handle on it with the evidence that's here, like, and and it might be inconvenient for me, but it's, but it's just true. Yes. Yes. No, that is so. Okay. So fun gun control story. Then I got one about inconvenient truth. So. The classic that you've heard before, of course, that in ancient China, which is where gunpowder was first invented through fireworks, right? And then it was like, oh, we could use this projectile to shoot things bigger than fireworks. So guns were invented in China. But the reason guns were invented in China, so the story goes, is that there was such an epidemic in violence that they banned swords and knives. Because so many people were getting stabbed, people were getting sliced, you know, it was just out of control, right? Like too much. So we're going to ban knives and swords. And so then they just made guns. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it's not the, again, it, it's not the the weapons thing. And this ties into this great discussion I had today with this amazing woman named Angel. And I asked her, we're putting together a group, it's called the 360 Mastermind. We're putting together a group of women of excellence that want to grow 
in a safe space specifically in every area of their life. So these are women of excellence that are business owners that are thriving, but want to grow in every area. So financial, health, relationships, faith, all of it in one. So not like I got to go to five different seminars. I just want to go to one place where I can work and we're curating the group. And so I asked her point blank. I said, well, tell me what are your expectations for this group? And she says, well, I'd, I'd like to reshape and reframe that question because expectations, I don't think is the right word for me. She goes, it's not about expectations. And then I, she said this and I fell off my chair and I wanted to appoint her president at the exact moment. She says, it's about responsibilities. It's my responsibility to come to this event and grow from what you're offering. You and your partner are setting the table, but it's my responsibility to eat. So she kept going on about responsibilities. And I was just like, oh my goodness, because it's not about rights. I think we should rename the Bill of Rights to the Bill of Responsibilities, right? It's about that responsibility, like you said, of saying, hey, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fan of guns. I don't own guns, but you know what? This is the truth. And I have to be responsible to admitting the inconvenient truth and saying, hey, you know what? Gun controls are going to solve the issue here. Because the more, you know, this is uh, the Dao De Chin and Lao Tzu, people pronounce his name so many different ways. But Lao Tzu said it the best, you know, of the more laws you have, the more lawbreakers you have. Yeah, yeah. The more violent society is. So less is actually more. And if you leave people alone, right, it self-regulates. But Well, and also, I don't even know if it's like, if it's even about small government or big government for me, it's about the right kind of government. And so like, if you have a school shooting, everyone wants to do something, mm-hmm. right? Because you feel powerless. Mm-hmm. And then you think if you're going to pass X set of laws that will get a result. Well, again, most of the research I've read, and these are not right-wing researchers. I mean, these are people that are probably sympathetic to gun control doing most of the research. It, it just is not going to solve the problem. So, like, so at what point are you like, look, we hate school shootings. It's awful. I don't know anybody that's pro school. Sh- I remember Rick Perry in in one of the presidential debates was like, they asked him about these um the PVP uh, inoculation um that he was making girls get in, in in high school, and some like libertarians were against it. He's like, look, let me say first of all, I hate cancer. And I'm like, well, I mean, you just lost the loving cancer because I mean, 45% of the people are got to be out of there. Like, I love cancer. Like, hey, let's thinning the population, weed down the herd. Yeah, but I mean, like, at some point, like, look, nobody likes school shootings. Like, nobody thinks these are, but the problem is, like, when something happens and we feel victimized and powerless, then there's always going to be this temptation to, like, grab at something at some lever of power. Mm-hmm. Because then it'll make you feel like you're doing something. The question is, are you doing the right thing? Yeah. Are you doing something that's actually going to impact the problem? Are you doing something that's actually going to do nothing or maybe even compound the problem? And I think that's the, the question Like you always have to ask, right? Like, how do you... And again, we're finite and fragile and, and fallen and faltering. So we're all working kind of without a net and with limited resources. So it, this is the thing where it's probably the more eyeballs we got on things, the better. And the more people, the more eyeballs you can dialogue with that have a different perspective than you, you're probably going to do better as well if you can handle that. But I think that's the the thing that I think is probably become strangely traumatizing for people in this cultural moment where people just have a hard time talking with people 
that they have fundamental disagreements with about important things. And, I, and if that's the case, um, we're going to lose uh, our, our culture. I mean, we'll just lose society because everyone's going to silo up mm-hmm. and everybody will get in their echo chambers mm-hmm. and everyone will have the, the, again, will have these like truths reinforced uh, that are deleterious. And as, as I often say, Less than helpful truths. Less than helpful. Less than helpful. So I got I got got two things for you. I got two things you're gonna love. So the first one, which is yeah, so apropos to what's happening today with the this this shade of skin tone matters movement, right? As much as you know, the the positive to come out of all of that is a just just remarkable that that something like this could stop sports altogether, like even hockey, right? Like okay, hockey, come on, hockey. And they're like, oh, we need we need to take two days off and process this. But here's what they they finally come face to face with, right? We're power, so quote unquote, we feel powerless, but there is no the short term solution. There is no magic law. And we've come face to face with, look, this is a long-term challenge that is bearing fruit. And it's not about, oh, yeah, we'll just pluck the fruit off the tree. It's like, no, no, no. We got to figure out how to get to the root of this tree. And that's not an instantaneous process. That's not a pass a law process. And I think that's been an inconvenient truth that people finally faced of like, there's no short-term quick fix. We have to look at, this is a long-term deal here. And now we've come face to face with, oh, wow, we got to finally look at the truth here. And then we talk about silos and voices. I want to get my phone, so I'm saying it correctly. And I want to quote a mentee of mine, the amazing Javon Langford. And he had this to say, so apropos, I got to make sure I can dig it up quick here. Here it goes. People who have trouble owning their voice will often invite you to lower yours. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. it's, and it's that part of like, wait a minute, why can't, like, that's what the show is all about, right? Why can't two intelligent people with sometimes diametrically opposed views have a great quality, friendly, learning, loving, laughing conversation? Absolutely. And that I think is what, this is this is the core. Cool I think this is what the world is finally realizing, right? There's only so much talking heads, I'm going to battle you, this and this and this. I think the world is looking for more of this, of like, hey, an intelligent conversation versus a sensationalism and, oh, I'm going to rip you and I'm going to attack you and this and this, right? Like, okay. Because you look at CNN and Fox, right? Same. It's all the same. Just flip it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Same thing. So they got, you know, what's this? I'm trying to – who's the guy with the short white hair? Um I used to be the adventure dude and all the uh, Anderson Cooper Anderson, right? So you got, you get the Anderson Cooper and CNN, and then you got the, the Anderson Cooper of Fox, and then you got the polarizing guy over here and this and this and this. And so I think it is for such a time as this, that there's going to be shows of doing just this, of saying, Hey, let's actually have an intelligent conversation versus the typical shouting match or the, this or that. Absolutely. And you know who not- Fox should put on at seven o'clock though. Who? And he would run the table. He would he would be the new water cronkite. They should take Geraldo Rivera and put him on at seven o'clock. Is Geraldo still around? He is. He's in his early seventies. He looks fantastic. Um, he's married to a woman that's got to be like I don't know. She's got to be like thirty years younger than him. He looks great, and he um, he goes on the five sometimes. 
on the five. With that show they have at five o'clock, where they usually have four conservatives and one liberal. They they have one liberal. It's five panelists at five o'clock. It's called okay. the five. Okay. But when Geraldo, but Geraldo's not really a traditional liberal. He's kind of middle of the road, and and like he's a friend of the president, and he'll critique the president on certain issues, and he'll defend the president on other issues. But if they put Geraldo on at seven o'clock, he would be the new Walter Cronkite because he's. Latino, he's been all over the issues on all different things. He's a great journalist. He cares about the truth. You can't, nobody owns him. Yeah. He's, at a, he's yeah. at a place in his career where he, mm-hmm. he just says what he thinks. Yeah. He says what he means. He means what he says. Mm-hmm. And if Fox put him on at seven o'clock, he, Fox would become the new, at seven o'clock, it'd be the news hour you tuned into mm. for news and dialogue. I, I, t- I, if anybody's listening here, to our show, or millions of listeners, if anyone is works for Fox, please contact me because I have a whole plan for the show, and I'll be just a producer or something, or even a production assistant. Because I think Geraldo is the bee's knees, dude. The He's, bees he is knees. awesome. He is just awesome. Her, I still remember. I still remember Al Capone's vault. Al Capone's vault. There was Capone! nothing in the vault. Yes. Yes. There was nothing in the vault. I mean, he is such a good journalist. He has a, a law degree too. Like he was like, he's Jewish and Puerto Rican. He has a law degree. I, I think he went to, I forget where he did his law degree, but uh, it might be Ivy League. It was a Columbia or Yale or something. It was a pretty prominent school, but he was this activist and he's, I feel like he's lived with us through the times and yeah. seen all these inconvenient truths. Yes. And again, the guy's not afraid to admit when he's wrong mm-hmm. uh, and he's not, a straight jacket guy again he'll he'll um you know he's a very independent thinker which which is so refreshing because it's really hard to find them now yeah could we find so i uh, just it just keeps coming up with geraldo he he is the most interesting man in the world so we can just say that right um, absolutely <laughs> but is there is there a possibility I don't even know if it's possible, right? In our two-party system, right? In our two-party network system, right? Is it even possible to have an independent network? Do you think that that could even happen? Not sure. You know, and it's interesting because... So you and I have talked a lot on the show about Designated Survivor. Yes. I and just saw I, the end of season one. Oh, gosh. Like, ah! And that scene with the therapist. Oh, my ah! God. You're like, oh, geez, Louise. But then I've been rewatching Madam Secretary. Which is also excellent. And I, I think here we have the media has successfully written two independent candidates, like two candidates that you, they really are not partisan, right? They're just independent. Thinkers. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's possible if the media can write it. I mean, they've done two now, like where I, I find both, um, oh, who's it? Tia Leon. Who plays Madam Secretary? Tia, Tia Leon, that's right. Tia Leon, yeah. She and Kiefer Sutherland have both com- like done these compelling performances of free thinkers that don't that aren't controlled by that kind of you know partisan um, machinery. Yes. So if Hollywood can write them, right? There's, I mean, there's obviously a couple writers that. So why can't we get them to run the news network <laughs> or create a new one based on right this new? Everybody's got the new platforms, right? Like NBC's got Peacock now, and you've got the shit. I mean, there's a shift, and I, I, I don't. I mean, it, it's really hitting. Obviously, it hit music first. Now it hit movies. Now I'm wondering if we can get that shift to network news. 
of actually creating this independent, whether it be a, you know, what's the, I don't know who, who bought him. Um, who's the actor that did the good news network or whatever on YouTube. And then, Oh, oh, the guy from the office. Yes, 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 yes. And then somebody picked it up for, I don't I forgot who bought it, but certainly there, there's going Hulu, to be. A, I think yeah, it was Hulu. But. There's going to be a disruption. So, there's going to be a disruptor somewhere of live. And maybe Netflix will do it, right? Maybe next, Netflix does a live streaming thing at seven, right? Where it becomes the independent network. Um, I think there's a disruption ready to happen, Scott Kent Jones. And you are the tip of the spear. I hope so. So let me give you another inconvenient truth. So I was talking, you know, President Trump was in Philly the other night. He uh, was. At, at, the Constitution, at the Constitution Center. Well, you couldn't get in because it was – so it was a really interesting event. It was done by ABC, okay. and it was at the Constitution Center. If any of our listeners, if you're in Philly, visit the Constitution Center. It's right by Independence Hall. It's, it's, a muse- it's basically a whole museum dedicated to our constitution and it's gorgeous and it's amazing. It's a beautiful structure and they, it, they have permanent exhibits and they have like, you know, wrote, they, they did a Bruce Springsteen exhibit one spring. I mean, it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's just, but they, they here. So here was my critique of the event. Like it was supposed to be, it was great. They had it in Pennsylvania. And so the, all the people that asked the questions in this town hall were, were supposed to be undecided voters. Right. So I, I don't know how they interviewed her. And then they got to ask the president questions. And Stephanopoulos did a good job as the moderator. And, you know, held Trump's feet to the fire on some points where I thought he should have. But here's the thing that that I, I, I found spurious. And this is going to sound not politically correct. And I'm just going to say it. I don't care. Okay. Um, well, I do care, but or else I wouldn't have prefaced it. But so, Okay. <laughs> So one of the most self-awareness. Reli- I love it, Scott. Yeah, one of the most reliable voting blocks is if you go to church three times or more a month, um, you're almost assuredly voting Republican. Not exclusively. There are people that go to church that much that vote Democrat, but it's a pretty heavy predictor. The only more reliable predictor is if you're African American. I mean, African Americans vote overwhelmingly Democrat. Not that again, there there are Black Republicans. I know. You know, several black Republicans who are well, pretty the passionate. Whole, there's the whole Blexit movement and all right. that. But, but it's still the most reliable thing. Like it's yeah. it's it, it's even evangel- what evangelicals and 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 African Americans are are two of the most reliable. So there were like four African Americans or five that asked questions, and I'm sitting there thinking, statistically, I don't think these are all undecided folks. <laughs> <laughs> especially the tone of their question and not that their questions weren't great. I mean, one woman is a pen professor who's had a debilitating pre-existing condition. And she asked a really good question about you want to get rid of Obamacare. What are you going to do about pre-existing conditions? I mean, there were questions that were legitimate, but I was just thinking like, wait, so can anybody say they're an undecided voter? Like, I mean, like I'm undecided. I want to ask a question. I mean, it was yeah, really, yeah. I was like, what's the correct. Well, that's period? why, that's why you did not merit the invite. Cause you did not check the undecided. Right. Vote. Right. It's like, cause look, I'm not, I should have just said, Oh, I'm undecided. I don't know. I might vote for uh, you know Minnie Mouse. I'm really thinking, you know, I'm a Disney guy and I love it. <laughs> and, but that, I, that's what I thought. And again, I didn't think the questions were unfair, but I thought, wow. I mean, if you're going on the premise that these are really people that are on the fence. And, and there were, again, there were people in the panel actually who voted for Trump. There were several white guys who voted for Trump who 
asked really critical questions. Like they were having, you know, buyer's remorse. So like, so it's not like the whole thing was a, a sham or anything. But I just thought, man, are you really like? It did seem like like the premise of the event was a little, was staged. I mean, or or like or, or not staged. I mean, the premise of the event didn't seem to me. And again, maybe that's tough to control because if they're screening questions and I say I'm an undecided voter, what can they say? I mean, they don't know. They can't read my mind. I mean, they can't. But but I just thought, like, come on. I mean, I would guess undecided voters would have more open-ended questions right <laughs> like if they're really on the fence right like or so i don't know so that's what i was you know like although i thought the president's performance overall and the thing was pretty poor i mean he just was not prepared and he just just not, you're not going to get him talking policy questions is not his strong suit right like but at the same time i sat there and i thought well I'm sympathetic if I was his campaign to the fact that this is not what it was said to be. Like, I don't think these are really, I know several undecided voters. Like and there, there are not a lot of them in the electorate. I mean, if you believe the polling, it's probably about 9%. Hmm. And I know several of them and, and the kind of questions they ask didn't sound like the kind of questions that were asked at the event, but you know, again, and I'm reducing, I'm kind of making my anecdotal experience, normative which is always a dangerous thing because i you know, but again i'll just I'll, it's my story and i'm sticking to it that i don't I, think I, I'll I need i need a special button to to make i need the sound effect every time you make a great self-aware comment so i can just be like ding 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 right so, i mean th- but that's how you find the truth right you have to you have to doubt your own presupposition sometimes right and ask like well, what what things am i bringing into the conversation mm-hmm that I'm probably unreflective about, right? And and whether it's like politics or especially if you know you're you're trying to start a business, right? Like at what point does does your belief that the business plan is just going to work? It, I've got it right. Mm-hmm. Sabotage you, right? In the sense of mm-hmm. because the data is showing now people just the dogs just don't like the dog food. Yeah. Like you know, and and that capacity which I think generally happens through relationships. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know any relationships and kind of exposing yourself to different ideas, which generally only takes flesh through relationships, right? Cause you can read books, you can read magazine articles, but until you talk with someone mm-hmm. who really sees the world differently than you, mm-hmm. who you can take seriously, who actually mm-hmm. has a breadth of knowledge and experience that you're like, look, we might not agree, but like you, you may, you know, you're a compelling person. Mm-hmm. Until you have that cadre of people around you, I don't know how you get out of the cul-de-sac. Get out of the cul-de-sac. Well said, Scott Kent Jones. On to the freeway. Yeah, no, part of it is just realizing you're in the cul-de-sac. That's the other part of just like, wait, are we in the cul-de-sac? No, we're not. Just keep driving. We're good. Do circles. It's great. You know, so no, that is that is spectacular. Here's one inconvenient truth I have for you. Yes. That has, uh, I laugh because, you know, two things you mentioned about uh, Trump, you know, hey, is this, you know, are these really undecided? I mean, uh, I mean, it's just the words you use, right? Like Trump's performance. Obviously, it's a dog and pony show and everybody knows right. it, right? Going back to like we said, the, the tail wags a dog and people just show up and they aren't shocked by it. They just go, oh, look, there's a tail wagging the dog again. Okay, keep scrolling, right? So one thing, inconvenient truth that I'm... I find fascinating is okay. So we have uh, 
we have Biden's, uh, you know, vice president. Okay. So uh, got the female side going, which is pretty revolutionary. I think it's really cool. But this whole thing where in California, and you can read it on her Wikipedia page, which is so hilarious. So if you pull her up on Wikipedia, it says she was the first South, what they call it, Southern Asian America, or yeah, Southeastern Asian America voted, uh, you know, in this office. And I'd like, okay, I'd, I'd never heard that specific uh racial category, right? They call it, it was Southern Eastern Asian or something like that. Um, so we're talking like um, Pace- like lower Pacific Rim in Asia. Like we're not talking about in... Wait, is she... Isn't her... Isn't part of her heritage Indian or something? Like, I, well, you gotta, you gotta pull up Wikipedia and you can read it. It's Southern... They said Southern Asian, you have the Google Asian, Southern Asian Eastern or some some weird like like oh that's a new box right and so she was like that was she was the first ever you know this awesome hey way to go championing the cause yes 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 and then to use the the toxic language of the of the era now she is labeled as the first you know black female right, right? it's like well you wait wait, wait. <laughs> Like we can just choose whatever flavor we we want to now on the ice cream, right? It's like, oh no, we're this, we're the no, no, we're gonna be this today, we're gonna be that today, and that that inconvenient truth was like, hmm. So she sound okay. She identifies as South Asian American. So there we South, go. South, so there South, Asian. South Asian American. Okay. So we're talking about like um, India uh, and her. So her. I guess dad is one of her parents is Indian, I guess. And her. Okay. Wait, her mother, Shamalia Gopalan. Okay. Um, was a pretty accomplished scientist. It looks like, and she immigrated here from India. Okay. Her father, who, Indian? who is, a Stanford professor of economics emeritus. He also came here in the sixties from British Jamaica. So yeah, it, it is. Well, it's interesting because but, but, but it all comes back to my favorite. And this is where I want to preface all of this with my favorite quote from Lewis Gossett Jr. Academy award winning Lewis Gossett Jr. Mayonnaise. We all remember him. Okay. He said this on the red carpet at one of the Oscar awards. And they just, as soon as he said it, they kind of shuffled him off and couldn't handle it. But when Lewis Gossett Jr. says this, I paid attention. I've carried it forward ever since. He said, there's only one race. Because they asked him about, well, what's it like to be the first, you know, Academy Award winner with this skin tone? And he's like, look, there's only one race, the human race. Yeah. And how, what, this is the thing. Now we got the 23andMe and the DNA swabs, right? So we can. By the look- way, I hate those commercials where these people are like, "Well, I was in Lederhosen my whole life drinking beer, and then I found that I was Scottish, and so I had to switch up. And now I have a kilt, and I'm drinking scotch and eating haggis. And I'm like, really, your life was that much of a fr- yeah, like, yeah, really, like, it was on. that. So this really turned your whole like you gave up your lederhosen didn't you like the lederhosen and the german beer like it's okay like you can still like the lederhosen yes, and the german beer yes. <laughs> but, but but let's look at the 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 your let's look at the vice president candidate right like if you look at her 23 and me right like it, there's going to be like probably 9% of every little color on the bar right and so at what point 
right? At what point can you play the color game or just can you just say they're a human being, right? The the human race. Why do we have this inconvenient truth, right? Why do we have to find and this is my question for the inconvenient truth. Well, what percentage on the 23 and me can I check that candidacy box? So for me, am I massively dis- I come from a normal dysfunctional family, mass dysfunction. So there is a Cherokee side. I have Cherokee blood in me. And whenever I get around Native Americans that, that see my nose, they go, Oh yeah, that that's a you know, that's a Cherokee nose, man. You're a Native American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then my dad's parents immigrated from Poland. So when I get around Polish people, they go, oh, no, no, that's a Polish nose, right? So I could play the dual candidacy, right? I could say, you know, hey, he's the, you know, Native American running for this office. No, wait, he's the Polish American running for this. It's like, wait a minute. Why can't we just be human? And is there a poll number that says if you're this percent on the 23andMe, now you can check that box? That's a lot to take in. But what do you got for me, Scott? All right. So uh, let me say a few things on this. I think, A, I think that... um There, okay, like Tim Scott, like Republican senator from South Carolina, I think, who wrote the Republican police reform bill, an African American. Um, he talked about being pulled over for driving while black several times in DC. Like, there was no reason other than he was black. He basically, mm-hmm. there wasn't. So, I think what happens when you're, when somebody is claiming, when somebody identifies as African American or black, you're saying basically that you're in this kind of tradition, you're in this kind of group of people that are as old as the country, but have kind of been marginalized and often oppressed. And even still there's some systemic injustices. And so like, and some of it is just on how you look, right? Like it's interesting because with Kamala Harris, right? Neither of her parents, I mean, is she like, you could say, is she African American, right? Because neither of her parents um, were have indigenous roots mm-hmm. in the sort of slavery diaspora kind of thing, but then they came here and and she comes out looking obviously black or or, or brown or in this kind of looking in a way that's not the sort of normative majority white who generally has controlled the levers of power and influence and things like that. So I think that that, but it's it's interesting because. All this stuff becomes complicated. Like when some people talk about reparations, which is a legitimate issue. I mean, I think after the Civil War, every slave was supposed to get 40 acres and a mule for their troubles, like for their oppression. And that never really happened. And so some people are saying, we want something like that. But then how do you process that? Like you look at the Obamas, right? Michelle Obama is uh, a descendant of slavery. Like, I mean, she can go back and like Mm -hmm. look at Barack Obama. It has a there's a colonialist legacy, but his mom was white, his dad was Kenyan. But again, he, if you look at him and you type him in a group, he's black. I mean, he's he's so. So I think it's interesting the way we we talk about color, and and even like black and brown, like like you. I mean, there's a massive group of people who I the the, the people I think that are are among the most used in this culture, right? Or undocumented workers. Because we have them here to pick avocados and clean hotel rooms and stuff. This is the easiest thing to solve in the world. You just say, oh, everybody well, comes hold, over. Well, hold, hold that narrative. I used to clean hotel rooms. Right, right. Sure. People okay. do. I mean, look, so, like, I, like I've cleaned, 
I used to do, I cleaned my, you know, my summer job in seminary was a house cleaner. I, I love okay. doing okay. house cleaner. So you're, like, okay. But most people don't, like, we need, there's more of those jobs to fill than we have. And it's really easy. You just say, okay, we'll give you a guest worker pass and you pay taxes. And if you're here for several years, you can even take the citizenship test. Mm-hmm. But Republicans don't want to do that because they like the issue. Oh, the people are taking your jobs. Democrats don't like it because I uh, don't want to change it because, oh, it's, we're, oh, look at these bad Republicans and they're so tough on um, undocumented workers. So nobody wants to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So you have all these groups of people who I think there are real identity issues, right? Like, and again, it's overgeneralizing, but somehow Kamala Harris is in a identity group that is not the majority identity group, right? And it's not, and generally has not been the the identity group that's um, held the levers of power. But these things become complicated because it her her like what you're saying, like her legacy, her her ethnic identity. If we're doing twenty three and Me and stuff does not come from mm-hmm. the indigenous kind of slave experience in America or something like that. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we, we process all these things. And I think it, it and the more, I mean, the thing that's going to become harder, harder or, or, or maybe better, I don't know, like, but the more multiracial we become, right? Like I'm adopted. Okay. I was raised by, um, you know, just kind of working class white people in South Jersey. My father, uh, my birth father uh, was, you know, to knowledge, I, my birth family, Puerto Rican. My mother was sort of Germanic Jewish, right? Like, and I find people ask me because I I don't look as, as white as, say, some other people. I don't look as Anglo as some other people. I darken pretty much in the summer and my facial features are a little, and people ask me, what are you? And so that's an interesting question, right? Because I don't know. I mean, because culturally I am white. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's just, how I was raised. So I was raised in a kind of white, in a white working class. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what I preach all the time, it, it's color, not culture. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's culture, not color. Excuse me. Everyone wants to make this assumption that the, the, sh- the tone of the shade of your skin tells us something about your culture. And it doesn't. I mean, I grew up again, major dysfunction family, right? We talk about the native American. We talk about the Polish, but the, my living grandparents were the only ones that alive when I was a kid were Filipino. So I grew up in a Filipino culture with the funky noodles and the funky smells and like, yes, it's disgusting. But you would never know that, right? By right, right, right. The, the shade of my skin tone. So I, I think it's about that inconvenient truth of addressing culture. You know, we can go back to Tiger Woods and Eminem, right? It's a culture thing, right? It, it's purely culture. But my... My challenge, going back to, the, again, both sides, right? The Trump thing, right? Hey, we're going to do the Trump show. And look, we're going to choose a specific shade of skin tone to ask these questions and say they're undecided. And then, again, on the other side, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to choose this, strategically choose this vice president based on sex and based on, you know, shade of skin tone. And it's like just that whole thing of like, you know, but, I even, but even just from a sex-wise, right? Like, well, do, are women supposed to identify with a woman? Because it's like, okay, she's going to think like me because she's a woman. It's like, uh, obviously Hillary proved that wasn't true. So, 
Hillary would have been the toughest president she ever had. <laughs> she was not. Yeah, she, I would not mess around with Hillary. Clinton. That's why she didn't. People were scared. People were just like, dude, if she gets elected, oh, I, I, look, I don't know. Like, I voted for Hillary Clinton. And I think she would have been a good president. But I mean, the thing that gave me the most reticence is like we're war weary, and man, I don't think she would have taken stuff from any world leader. I mean, I, I, I think she was. She would have not. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think she would have been a dove at all. I think she would have. I think she would have moved the troops around and been pretty confident doing. It. But I do think the difference between culture and color, though, is there is still the phenomenon again driving a black. So sometimes people experience getting treated differently just because of how they look, right? And we all have these presuppositions, right? Like it, it's funny. Like my buddy Chris and I did this one podcast, and we did this thing about how you assess risk in a pandemic. And there's this woman from Penn who wrote, she teaches law and psychology, wrote a great piece. And she said, look, like six feet looks different if I know you than if you're a stranger. Like the way humans calculate six feet. And also there was research that she pointed to that like when people are breaking the rules, like, okay, let's say this person doesn't have a mask on or they're going to a bar indoors that we judge people differently if they look like us than if they don't, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if, if their own racial, if their own color visual looks different, we tend to judge them differently. Um, so I think it's just complicated. I mean, it's, it's a really complicated reality where I think like it, I think in many ways it is more culture than color, at least how we're existentially formed. And yet there still are these instances where, People get judged by appearance, and color plays a big part in it. And and I and and again, I think it's it's getting better. Like the more diverse we get as a, as a society, like it 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 mitigates it some. But still, it's a it's a reality. And I don't know. It's a messy kind of thing where I think both things are real, right? Like the culture and the color and the way we interact mm-hmm. with people. And I I just think, but it is an interesting thing about diversity and. And how you pick like you pick the pick candidates for these reasons of like, hey, like, you know, uh and, and you know, I do think that like we identify with people that feel and look like us very often, right? And so like I think there is a sense in which uh women, you know, like, oh, we could have the first female president, you know, she's the she'll be the first female female vice president, she could be the first female president, like, or I think Gosh, if you're a marginalized group and you see like Barack Obama, he he looks like us, he'll stand with us. Uh but again, I mean, what what um what like all the conservative talk radio show hosts will tell you is that when it comes to a black conservative, they don't get that pass, right? Like so if it's a black conservative, they just not, they just don't get the black vote. I mean, like it just doesn't work. I mean, like like, like Ben you, Carson, right? Right, yeah, like Ben Carson. You know, if Ben Carson ran for president, he would get ten percent of the black vote. Mm. Mm. I mean, that's it. I mean, maybe twelve. Like he, he's just it's just it's the way our politics work out. So I don't know. That that is a long way around saying I don't know. Like I don't know. Okay. We got ding ding ding. Ding ding ding. ding. Scott yeah. doesn't know. More more, uh, more self awareness. Love it. Yeah, and I think identity politics are I mean my friend David French wrote this great piece. Um, I'll put it in the show notes about um, Christianity and critical race theory. And it was really interesting because he said, look, there are some places he's, 
He's he's a kind of never Trumper Republican. He was when he went to Harvard Law School, he was the president of the pro life group from Harvard. Then he voluntarily went to Iraq as a judge advocate general and served in, you know, a theater of war. And has adopted two black kids, I think, from Africa. So, I mean, this is a guy, and he's been maligned by a lot of conservatives because of his stance on Trump. But this is a kind of like conservative conservative. And he had he had some good views on how a lot of critical race theory can help us at times understand how, oh my gosh, somebody really has it hard in some ways I didn't understand, right? Like, especially if they're both black and a woman or if they're a minority and disabled basis. The problem is when you turn it into these prescriptive political realities where you're saying, well, well, this is what happened like in the women's march against Trump, right? Like I remember in 2016 when they had this march. So these Jewish feminists were getting boxed out of the march because the Palestinian feminists were like, well, you stand with Israel. <laughs> and so you can't march with us against Trump because, because, you know, because you're white and privileged and Israeli and we're Palestinian. And so like, and the, the other feminists are like, well, we got to side with the Palestinians, right? Because they're more oppressed than the white Jewish one. So, I mean, that's where I think it becomes like toxic in the mm-hmm. sense of it, it, it just doesn't help us move forward constructively. It's it, This is where I would say, again, quoting myself, it enters into the realm of less than helpful. Less than helpful. <laughs> so, so, let me, so let me end the show with this because we've all heard it, but I don't think... 99% of the people have actually heard it, heard it, heard it, because most of these movements are going the polar opposite direction. So this is the reason my bride and I got married in Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial on the step, right, where Martin Luther King gave his speech. But the classic speech of Toothfold, he didn't say, I had a plan. He said, I have a dream. Yeah. Okay. And the second thing was, he also, you know, he didn't say I have a job either. He said, I have a dream. He also, he said, and this is, again, I want every billions of listeners to to hear me, to feel me, and to watch this. He said, I have a dream that one day my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And the only way you can get the content of their character is to actually listen. Yeah. Like we talked about, of going past. And then again, everything that we do is the polar opposite and running away from that. This particular lives matter. Just the, 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 the thing you had, no, 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 you can't march with us and this and that. And it's like, let's just focus on the human race and the content of character. And this is my brother pointed this out a long time ago on the show with this uh, in the sci-fi hero action hero movies, right? Where the, the aliens are coming to blow up the earth for you Bugs Bunny fans. Um, it's the same story every time, right? They're coming. I love that. I love that Martian. Yes, yes. I'm going to blow up the earth. That is every single Marvel movie to date. I'm going to blow up the earth in some shape or form, right? And even in Terminator, right? What made Terminator so great was it was us against the machines. Yeah. And so what united everybody was, wait, are you human? Okay, if you're human, you're with us. Yeah. Right? But it took this, the machines are taking over the world to get to that human component. So- Per what you said, the writers have written it, right? 30-ish years ago, the writers wrote it, right? I think it is possible to look at someone, oh, are you human? Okay, then we're together, right? Without having to worry about, you know, uh, the machines coming to to take us over. But I just want to hearken, call America, not call America out, but call America forward, like my mentee, Javon Langford says, to 
see others as the human, the only one race, the human race. Thank you very much. And we're in it together. Yes. We're running it together. It's the only race we can run. Thanks. Love my friend. It. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of learning, laughing and loving with Evan money and Scott Jones. If you like what you've heard here, please do something for us. Go to iTunes and write a review. Give us a rating. Tell people. Share it on social media. If you found something you love here, share the love and goodness with the world. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.